Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Optimize Your Body podcast. I've got an extremely special guest on the line here today, and he goes by the name of Anthony Chafee. If I pronounce your surname right there, mate, please say I have. Uh, pretty close, yeah. Chafee, yeah. Chafee, Chafee. Okay, yeah. Anthony Chafee. Yeah, very close. Uh, yeah. good, good effort. Really good effort. Uh, <laughs> Anthony Chafee, doc, Dr. Anthony Chafee. Don't forget the doctor part. He worked hard for that. Um, he's an American medical doctor and neurosurgical resident. He actually lives over in Perth, just across the other side of Australia to where I'm at. Um, but over a span of 20 plus years, has researched the optimal nutrition for human performance and health. It's his, insert, his assertion that most of the so-called chronic diseases we treat as doctors are caused by the food we eat or don't eat and can be reversed with dietary changes to a species-specific diet. So fascinating stuff. But yeah, you're based over in Perth. And mm -hmm. how long have you been in Perth for now? Sorry, man. Oh, just four years now. Four years, yeah. Because we were talking off air because obviously, tell by his accent, Anthony, you originally from Seattle? Is that where you're from originally? Yeah, mostly. So born in California, lived there till I was about 10 and then moved up to the Seattle area. Yeah. Nice, nice. And how do you find the, I know I asked you this off air, but just for the audience, 50% of my audience are in America. So I think it'd be interesting for them just in terms of the difference of lifestyle, because Perth is a great spot. It's like mm. all the best beaches, I would say some of the best beaches in Australia there, you know? Yeah. Coddlesville Beach. It's a nice one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the way I think about it with uh, Western Australia and, and Perth, and the surrounding areas it's sort of like coastal california southern california back in like the 50s you know so it's very underdeveloped it's just small you know beach towns and and a very good quiet lifestyle um and there's you know there's there's more population density in perth but it's it's not crazy or anything like that you know so you know maybe maybe how like la or san diego was you know, 50, 70 years ago or something like that, you know, but uh, no, it's very chill. It's a very good lifestyle. It's nice, nice Southern California sort of weather, which is, you know, something that I'm, I've always really liked, um, you know, and it, and it's great. You know, Australia is awesome. I've really liked it here. I think, you know, I do, I do miss America for uh, a lot of reasons. I think the more I travel, the more I appreciate America for a lot of different reasons. And that's always going to be, you know, where my heart is, but I'm definitely enjoying it uh, while I'm here. I would say America, one thing I love about America is like just the culture and stuff. Mm. I think, you know, and the UK is the same like that, but I, I think America is a good country in the sense where you could, you don't really have to leave the country. If you think about all the things yeah. you've got, yeah. and what, you know, you can go skiing, yeah. you could go to the best beaches, you've got culture in different states. Mm -hmm. So many great, obviously there's good and bad everywhere. Right. But I think America, and yeah. I understand, I kind of understand why a lot of Americans I would meet they wouldn't have any idea of anywhere outside of America. And they would just think they, they, they had no idea where Wales is, where I'm from. They just go, oh, <laughs> London, London. Is that, is that uh, England? Is that the same thing? And that's all they would know outside, you know, in the yeah. UK. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing, you know, I, I mean, I guess it's, it also depends on sort of where you're at. Like, I mean, you know, my, my family has, has traveled, you know, quite a bit. My grandfather was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, did his PhD there. And, um, and so my family lived in, you know, my, my mom, lived in England for part of her life and, and, um, and they would have traveled quite extensively. So, I mean, I grew up knowing more about this sort of stuff and I guess I, I probably got lucky just with my family and, and having the conversations about their history and what they've done and being able to pass that on to me. Um, but, uh, you know, we do, yeah, yeah, we don't go into too much about European history, we do more like American history and things like that. And that's something that you have to, I mean, you'll get, you'll get some European, will absolutely get European history in, in American high schools. But, um, 
probably not much outside of that, you know, because obviously we have European ancestry and roots and, you know, our, our society and civilization is, is based on that Anglo-Saxon, uh, you know, the Magna Carta sort of background, you know, and we still have common law, just like Australia and all these sorts of things. So a lot of that is, has roots in European culture. And so we would learn more about that, but if you wanted to sort of get more involved in, in, uh, you know, world history and, and, and anything else like you, that would be special classes that you'd have to take in college. Interesting. Interesting. So yeah, tell us a bit more about your background, man. Tell us a bit more about, you know, how you got into, you know, neurosurgery and everything else, uh, that you do now and just, yeah, just a bit more about your kind of life in a nutshell. No, well, yeah. So, you know, I, I was always interested in medicine. I was, since I was a little kid, I was always interested in becoming a doctor. I just wanted to know how people's bodies worked and how to fix them. I just thought that uh, surgery was probably one of the more amazing things ever. I mean, you know, I, I just thought about, you know, someone had something wrong with them. There was, it was physically wrong with them. And I could, I could go inside their body and fix them with my hands. I just thought that was just the most incredible thing that it, that, could ever be done. And and I still think that I think it's just absolutely amazing that, that we can do that for people and that I, I have the opportunity to do that for people. And they, and they even let me, I mean, it's uh it's, it's quite remarkable, especially in neurosurgery when people allow you to drill into their head and, and, and uh, operate on their brains. I think that's crazy, <laughs> you know, it's just that conceptually, uh, but of course it's necessary. You know, we do have to do that in, in some cases and uh, it's very, I don't know. I think it's just amazing to be able to do that for people. So neurosurgery in particular just blew me away. In my first few months in medical school, I saw a few neurosurgical cases and I, I was just absolutely taken aback just from the complexity and majesty of the organ itself. You know, the brain is everything. It's who we are. It's our consciousness. It's our thoughts, our feelings, our hopes, our dreams, our entire humanity, our are brought about by this, this organ in our, in our heads. And I just thought that was incredible. I remember watching an operation where they, you know, did a craniotomy. So we took off or they took off, um, you know, big part of the skull and, and you saw the brain there and it's sort of pulsing like that creepy, like a sci-fi movie or something like that. Actually more intense than a sci-fi movie because they don't get all the little details that you actually see in real life. And I remember thinking to myself like that, that is who, this person is like everything that makes that person who they are is there and you, and you can physically touch it. Right. And it's not a physical representation of it. It is their humanity. Um, and, and, in you know, different sort of chemical programs, we have our memories, our hopes, our dreams, our thoughts, how we react to things are all built in this extraordinarily complex chemical design, biochemical design. And I just thought that was absolutely amazing. And I remember thinking, you know, somewhere in this person's brain is the memory of their dog on their seventh birthday. And you can touch it with your finger. And I just thought that's unreal. And so I just wanted to know more and more about it. And so I, uh, you know, I just had a, an absolute fascination with the brain and the nervous system and, uh, and neurosurgery in general, and being able to, uh, you know, fix people and, uh, and give them back their, their brains and their humanity and what makes them, them. So fascinating. The brain is the most complex thing on the planet, right? And mm. then, you know, you got metabolism, which is also very complex, but it really fascinates me. So I've got to be careful that I don't just make this a salvage conversation now. I don't, <laughs> to, I don't want to go too deep into that. But no, that's that's really fascinating. And how did you 
actually get into the nutrition side of things. So I know you've been really fascinated with that as well, optimal nutrition, because I know you're an athlete as well. So how did you, what took you from doing that and getting into the neuro side of things and obviously neurosurgery to really getting tuned into the nutrition and performance element? Sorry, the nutrition. Well, it kind of is, isn't it? Nutrition and human performance. Yeah, well, I mean, that was, that was A, because I was interested in biology and studying biology and chemistry and, and everything, all my prerequisites for medical school. And I just was interested in general uh, because, I, you know, I, I've always I've always understood and thought that um, you know, that nutrition was, was the bedrock of our, of our health. You know, you have to put in the right things for your body to work properly. And so I wanted to know what, what we needed to put in properly and, uh, to get optimal health and specifically for my athletic performance as well, because I, I was, I was an all American rugby player in, in high school and I played it at a very high level from then onwards. And I wanted to play my best. I wanted to feel my best. I wanted to, uh, perform my best. And so, I was always very interested in that. So I, I took the traditional classes in nutrition uh, you know, at the university level, um, you know, integrated in with different biology classes. But I I stumbled across a carnivore diet, uh, which I think is is really our optimal diet, basically because I was also studying botany and biology and how plants defend themselves just like other living organisms. And by by virtue of the fact that they're stationary, they can't run away or fight back like an animal can. They have to defend themselves in other means. They're, they're just sitting ducks. They're just sitting there and, and they're being preyed upon by animals and insects constantly. And yet they make up 99% of life on earth, right? So that's a very dominant life form. So obviously they have very robust defenses and their main defense is by actual chemical defense. They're, they're, they're making poisons that will stop animals from being able to eat them, maybe poison them directly or disrupt their inner workings in such a way that is not advantageous for them to eat that plant. Maybe it, it makes it so they don't absorb nutrients properly or they don't get the most out of those nutrients. And so they get nutrient deprived. And so some other source of nutrition is a bit better. And, you know, as I learned in biology, plants and animals are in an evolutionary arms race, plants becoming more and more poisonous. So less and less animals can eat them. And, uh, animals becoming more and more adapted to specific poisons and specific plants so they can eat that plant and survive and thrive. Um, and that becomes their, their dedicated food source, right? And this is why koalas eat eucalyptus and almost nothing else eats eucalyptus, but they don't eat anything else either because they're adapted to eat that plant. And so nutrition in the wild is very specific. Animals eat extremely specifically. Uh, and especially if they're eating plants, they eat very specific plants. You can't just eat any random plant, right? You get lost in the woods, you run out of food. If you start going around eating random plants, you're, you're going to hurt yourself and you'll probably end up killing yourself. So we were, um, you know, we've gone over this in a number of different classes and you learn this conceptually and then you go home and you think, like, oh yeah, salad's good for me. And you, and you don't connect those two dots. But then I was taking a class in cancer biology. Uh, at the University of Washington in Seattle, which is you know one of the top you know in institutions in America, and they have one of the top medical programs in America, one of the top genetics programs uh, in in the world. Really, they headed the Human Genome Project. My professors who taught genetics, they were in charge of the Human Genome Project, and so this is a, this is a you know very very good place to learn the biological sciences, and medical sciences, and so in my cancer biology class, we learned early on that these toxins and poisons can actually be mutagenic or carcinogenic 
the WHO even has uh, states that has different articles talking about the carcinogenic nature and toxic nature of the different plants that we eat on a regular basis. And so we were looking at these toxins, but we were looking at them from a, car a cancer point of view. And so we learned early on that even Brussels sprouts have 136 known carcinogens in them. And this was 23 years ago that we learned this. And so, um, you know, there may have been more discovered since then, but at the time it was 136 known human carcinogens and over a hundred, uh, carcinogens in mushrooms and 60, 80 or more in all the other produce that we eat, like spinach, kale, lettuce, celery, cabbage, cucumber, broccoli, whatever, whatever you care to eat, they have these different defense chemicals in them, be they fruit or vegetables. And they're quite abundant. We know from the research of professor Bruce Ames from UC Berkeley, he published in 1989, talking about, com well, comparing the naturally occurring toxins to pesticides. They were actually trying to ban. They're saying, hey, pesticides are bad. They're poisons. We should get rid of them. And the idea was, well, yes, that's the whole point that they're poison. They're, we're trying to poison insects from eating this so they don't eat them. But how does a plant normally survive? How, how is it that they don't just get overrun by locusts in the first place? Well, that's because they make their own natural defenses. This is where GMOs come in, right? Because you know, some insect may be able to eat corn, but it can't eat wheat because wheat is poisonous to it, right? And so you take out the protein that's toxic to that bug from wheat, you put it in corn, now that bug can't eat corn. And people get upset, like, well, this is making this more poisonous. Yes, that's the idea. That's the whole point is to make it more poisonous so less uh, insects and animals can eat them. But unfortunately, that means that we're getting that end product as well. We're getting this, this thing that has more defense chemicals as well. So this is not a new concept. This is, this is very fundamental in uh, botany, horticulture, and, and even in farming. Like far Farmers know this. They want these seeds that have more innate toxins so that they get better crop yields and they use less pesticides. That's the whole point. That's why they use GMOs, right? And you can breed these things to be more toxic as well so that they can survive and get better crop yields. That's how you get better crop yields uh, from, from pest infections. So he showed, uh, Professor Ames showed that there were 10,000 times more naturally occurring toxins in the plants and produce that we eat than the pesticides we spray on them by weight. And that the naturally occurring poisons were actually quite a lot more toxic. So specifically in just white mushrooms that people may eat or think they're healthy, he showed that they were actually 500 times more likely to cause cancer than the pesticide ALAR that they were comparing this against. And so, you know, in the proportion that you get it on, on the plants that you're eating, the mushroom itself was 500 times more likely to cause cancer in animal models. So it's, it's not actually a small thing. And so people will say, well, in the levels that we're eating them, maybe it's not such a bad thing. Well, it's 500 times more likely to cause cancer than pesticides. And so if you're worried about pesticides, you should be doubly concerned with the actual plants themselves that the pesticides are being sprayed on. So it's not, it's not good enough to just grow this in your own garden. It's the plant itself actually is, is harmful. So we were learning that and we were actually just very blown away by this. And I remember thinking to myself, well, but, you know, but vegetables are still good for you though. Right. And, um, you know, we were just, uh, very, very shocked by that. And I remember my professor looking at us and, you know, just, I felt like he read my mind because, you know, he just looked at us and said, I don't eat salad. I don't eat vegetables. 
I don't let my kids eat vegetables. Plants are trying to kill you. And so I just said, fine, right. No plants. I'm not going to eat any plants. And I just, I went to the grocery store and I just was looking around. I'm like, well, what the hell do I eat? Like everything's a plant. Everything has plants in it. And I just was wandering around and seemingly forever. And I came across some eggs. I was like, okay, eggs, eggs don't come from a plant. Put those in the cart. Uh, came by the meat aisle, you know, some, some meat, meat doesn't come from plants. Great. So I just ate eggs and meat. And, you know, the first couple of weeks I felt like I was deprived of things and I uh, looking at all the things that I couldn't eat. And I was, uh, you know, had some FOMO. I'm like, Oh, I can't eat that. I can't eat that. And, uh, you know, and then after two weeks, I just didn't care. All I wanted to eat was eggs and meat. That's what I preferred to eat anyway. And now I didn't even look at this stuff as even, even food anymore. It was just like, Ooh, eggs and meat, eggs and meat. That's all I wanted. And I just felt amazing. And I, my athletic performance started going through the roof. Uh, my scholastic performance started going through the roof. I didn't have brain fog. I didn't get tired. I could, I, you know, I was go, go, go from the second I woke up to when I went to sleep at night, you know, I was taking a full load at the university of Washington, you know, taking, uh, you know, genetics, organic chemistry, a uh, number of other uh, biology classes and, you know, playing rugby for the university team and, you know, the, the senior, uh, uh, premiership team as well in my, in Seattle. Um, and so I was just constantly go, 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 go. And I felt great. I felt great all the time. I had amazing energy. I could always keep up and my performance in school and in athletics, especially just went, went absolutely through the roof. It was, I just, there's nothing that can compare to it in my, in my entire existence. And I sort of slipped off of that when I was playing rugby in England, you know, some of the meat was breaded. And I sort of convinced myself, well, maybe it's not that big of a deal to have a bit of breading or or crumbs on the chicken or whatever. Um, you know, dose makes the poison, as they say. So maybe this isn't that much. Maybe it doesn't make a big difference. But it actually, did it made a big difference. A couple months into my time there, I remember thinking to myself, you know, why don't I feel as just superhuman, amazing as I normally do? Am I not pushing myself? Am I not working out as hard? I'm 25 now. Am I just over the hill? They say, you know, you get into your late 20s, and you just saw downhill from there. You just start dying. And so I was like, well, maybe that's it. Um, but, you know, looking back, that's when I started slipping off of that. And I'm really, I mean, just, just some crumbing on chicken, like that was, that was the difference. And uh, so even that little amount was enough poison, if you want to call it that, to, to affect me and, and damage my performance and how I felt. And I, the biggest thing that that did is it opened the door to eating other things because now I wasn't strict. I'm not eating any plants ever. Now it was, well, a little bit here and there. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. And so that was uh, that was sort of the beginning of the end. So I, then I sort of a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And then I was back to sort of eating a more normal diet, but whole foods still very meat-based, but just with some salad and maybe some carbs or something like that. But I, I never was a big processed food person, never really ate junk food or anything like that. And then uh, about five, six years ago, when I was back from uh, doing humanitarian work in Bangladesh, I was, uh, I just came back across it. And I know you've been on uh, Dr. Baker's podcast and had him on yours. And, uh, and I saw him on Joe Rogan and my brother was saying, Hey, there's this guy, he's a doctor. He played professional rugby and he's saying, you can get all your nutrients from meat. And, and instantly I was just like, oh, well, that, you know, that can't be right. But then, you know, a voice of reason in the back of my head said, well, Hold on a second. I was I was basically doing that for five years, and I that was a period of my life I've never felt better. And so you know it's not it's not unreasonable because I remember you know, thinking every few months I was like, 
you know, do I need to take a multivitamin or eat a banana or something? You know, do I need some vitamins? Uh, but, you know, I, I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, my, I feel good. My gums aren't bleeding. So, you know, I'm just going to ride this out and see how we go. And, uh, and I felt fine. I never, I never had any, any issues. I never had to take any supplements. And so I was like, well, okay, well, it's not actually not too far-fetched because I did that. And, um, and, uh, you know, I, I was better than ever. And so I watched his interview and within five minutes, I was like, this guy's bang on. And so then I realized that no humans actually are carnivores. It's just the kind of animal that we are. And just like every animal in nature, if you start, if an animal eats what it doesn't normally eat, what it's not biologically designed to eat, it gets very, very sick. And zookeepers will tell you that that's why there's signs that they do say, don't feed the animals. Don't feed the animals thing that you're eating right now. You maybe think about that. And so I was like, right, I knew it. I knew plants were trying to kill me, get rid of these stupid things. And I just started eating just all, all meat after that. And again, I was 38 years old and then bam, I felt like I was 22 again. And, uh, and, and how I was in my early twenties doing a carnivore diet, I felt better in my late thirties than I did in my mid twenties, not doing the carnivore diet. And I was like, right, time to go play some rugby again. So I went back out for my team in Seattle that had just gone professional, was playing in the major league rugby championship. And I, I started playing and I felt great. And so, uh, even though I was, you know, fat and out of shape and like, I felt amazing and my, I started, you know, getting in like crazy good shape and, and just transforming visually. And at that point, I just started really digging into the research and digging into literature and finding out, okay, what do we know? What can we prove? And, and what else, you know, what evidence do we have out there? And then I also looked at the opposite side of the argument because I didn't want to be a victim of, uh, of confirmation bias. I wanted to see what the opposition had to say, you know, the, the vegans and vegetarians that were saying, no, 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 plant-based is the way to go. I say, okay, what am I missing here? What are you guys seeing that I'm not? And, you know, it wasn't very compelling. You know, everything that they talked about were um, either predicated on false information, such as cholesterol causing heart disease, which it absolutely does not, or red meat causes cancer, which it absolutely does not. And there's copious amounts of studies, evidence, randomized controlled trials, and, and what have you showing that. And, um, and then that was most of it was predicated on that. And then others are just, just things that are just flat out lies. They just made things up and they say, oh, well, we have humans have, you know, pH of, you know, it's more neutral, like a cow, like the hell it is. It's just way more acidic, like a vulture, you know, and so, or a lion or something like that. And so it's the things that they would just make up and they would just lie about like, well, that's not true. That's clearly demonstrably false and wrong. And, um, and so, you know, I just, that actually made me even more convinced that humans should just be eating meat. And so that's what I've been trying to do and trying to incorporate that in my practice, because looking at medicine from that standpoint, that humans are carnivores, that's the kind of animal that we are. And, but we are animals that are not eating our biologically appropriate diet. And like all animals, you will get sick. And so I'm looking at this and everything just started slotting into place as far as chronic diseases and, and the degradation of health of humanity over the past 40 years. We've been going away from eating meat. We've been eating things that we're not biologically designed to eat and we're getting sicker. We're getting fatter. We're getting less healthy. We're our, you know, and our, um, our quality of life is going down and our quantity of life has started to go down as well. And so, you know, I think that that explains quite a lot of, uh, of that is just eating the wrong thing. And so I've been trying to incorporate that into my practice as well to help my patients.
Mm, awesome story. Yeah, it's funny you say that about the interview with Sean Baker and Joe Rogan. That was four or five years ago. Mm. Remember, I was driving somewhere actually here in Sydney and I heard it and I was listening to it and I thought, I'm going to try that. Well, I'm going to try that for a month. And I never did. And then it was like something in my head. I was like, <laughs> nah, surely that can't be good. It was just, you know, like the information in my head, even I was almost a little bit brainwashed, right? And, I'm, and to be honest, mm. it was strange because I was the guy right and they used to like plants i used to i could eat like a bowl of broccoli and cauliflower with olive oil and salt and you know have some meat after that and actually enjoy it i used to enjoy eating those foods but we mentioned on your podcast the issues i used to get on my guts and i'm not gonna bore the audience with that again but yeah when i heard it it made a lot of sense to me and then when you look at someone like sean as well you know as you say athlete played rugby played rugby in new zealand actually at one point mm, yeah. um, you know in his 50s in incredible shape looks really healthy it's worth listening to what he's got to say and then the way he communicated it made a lot of sense as well, right? In terms of, you know, plants being more of a survival food. That mm. kind of resonated with me because it's like, it does make sense though, doesn't it? The, there's no, virtually no, well, nowhere near as many bioavailable nutrients in them. No calories to sustain life really anyway. And then you mm. look at eating like a cow or if you were to hunt an elephant, I think you used that um, example, right? To hunt an elephant, you're going to get like millions of calories, right? Mm. You're going to have all these bioavailable nutrients and all the rest of it. But yeah, what you talked about there in terms of you were referring to, you know, metabolic health and you said about your own journey, about your transformation with how you felt and performed that second time, you know, eating, eating carnivore and never looking back. And I'm sure with all the patients you treat, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us some of some examples, what you've seen, how you've helped people, you know, by changing the way they eat, how you've helped them reverse certain chronic illnesses. Yeah, well, I mean, we we even have you know clinical data showing that 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 you can reverse type two diabetes and metabolic syndrome with dietary measures, specifically a ketogenic diet. Um, that's been clinically proven, you know, in in large human trials. So. Uh, and that's something that I saw, you know, years before we actually had those those trials come out. But you know, you think about it conceptually, you know, you have you have chronically high blood sugar that's causing damage to the body. That's what damages diabetics long term is this chronically high blood sugar, and then correspondingly high insulin, which causes you know then you eventually get insulin resistance and you get a lot of damage to your body hormonally and elsewise because of high insulin level, I mean, even just like blood pressure, uh, erectile dysfunction, hormonal imbalances, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome in women, all of these things can be precipitated by uh, you know, excessively high insulin long-term. And so you just stop eating carbohydrates, you stop having high blood sugar, and you stop having high, correspondingly high insulin, all that goes away. I mean, why wouldn't it go away? I mean, that's that's just how that mechanism works. And so I've seen that in, in people in real life do that. And all of a sudden they're coming off all their blood pressure, blood sugar medications, blood pressure medications and uh, reversing their diabetes. My mother, I saw her do that. She went on a carnivore diet within two months. She was off most of her oral medications, was off most of her insulin and her HbA1c went from 8.9 down to 6.1 in two months. So that's that uh, she's reversing her diabetes and coming off medication at the same time. That doesn't happen, or at least heretofore it didn't wasn't thought that it could happen, but it does happen. And we do see this. And now we have clinical trials showing that you can do this. So you do see that. Uh, I especially, we certainly see you know, weight loss, health, just pe people feeling better, have better energy. They get rid of brain fog. Their brain works a lot better. Your brain works better on ketones, works best on ketones. So people will try to say that uh, your brain's main energy source is glucose. That's completely wrong. They just say that because in our what we call our primary metabolic state, our so-called fed state, as opposed to our fasting state, 
our brain is primarily running on glucose, but it also runs on ketones. Any ketones that you have available, your brain is using. And so it's just that you're filling in the gaps with, with uh, glucose, right? Because if you increase your ketone level, even if you maintain a high glucose level, your brain will switch over to exclusively running on ketones, even if glucose is available. So what does that mean? That means it prefers ketones, right? And especially in the periphery in the cerebral cortex, you know, the part that, that gives us our intelligence and, and motivations uh, as, to make us humans, that all is, is uh, running on ketones. There are part of your brains that still run on glucose, but primarily it runs on, on ketones. And so it, it also, your, your brain suffers from insulin resistance, just like every other tissue in your body. And so if you're just eating chronically eating, uh, you know, sugar, 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 you know, this can, can be implicated in uh, dementia and Alzheimer's and things like that, because you're just not getting the requisite amount of energy into your brain. Then you switch over to ketones. Ketones don't need insulin to cross the blood brain barrier, and they can actually reconstitute into fatty acids and then build up the physical structures of your brain as well. And so, you know, in, in, instead of having our brains degrade as we go, as, as we age, you can actually maintain where it is or even rebuild. There's a study with a ketogenic diet, putting uh, elderly people with Alzheimer's on a ketogenic diet, showing that you can, you can um, better treat Alzheimer's with a ketogenic diet than every medication that's ever been trialed for uh, uh, for Alzheimer's, right? So that that's major. It's, it's better than any drug we've ever come across, right? Just putting people, uh, on, in, on a ketogenic diet, not even just, just meat only diet, but just ketogenic diet so that their brains are running on this, on this primary, uh, energy source and can reconstitute the, uh, ketones into physical structures of the brain. And, you might be getting more cholesterol there as well. Your brain, you know, likes to use cholesterol for the physical structures of the brain as well, like the myelin sheath around your axons, which makes them uh, better insulated and can fire better and work better. So there's a lot that goes into it, but your brain fog can go away. Your 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 neurological symptoms can resolve. In um, autoimmune diseases, they are they are some of the most uh, dramatic. Uh, things to to be affected by a carnivore diet or any sort of elimination diet, you know, and there's there's clinical trials with this as well in Crohn's disease, for instance, where if you put someone on an elemental diet, which is very processed, it's just a powdered jug of nutrients basically, and it's all the sort of micro macronutrients that we think we need. I'm sure there are a lot of other micronutrients that we don't know that we need, but this is as good as we can get in a powdered form. And putting putting someone with Crohn's disease on an elemental diet is better to get them out of an acute flare-up of Crohn's where maybe you're having bloody diarrhea 20, 30 times a day. It's they, That works faster to get them out of an acute flare-up than prednisone, prednisolone. So like high-grade steroids that, that just slam down your immune system. It's a gold standard on getting someone out of these flare-ups, but it has, it comes at a cost, it has huge side effects on your body. You can't really do it long-term. And so you have to go on these other biologics, all these other immunosuppressants to suppress your immune system. So it can't react and can't fight your own body, but it's also not fighting other things, right? So you get more infections, you get more cancers, you get more other problems. So just putting, just changing someone's diet is better than the best medications. We already know that clinically. Um, there are other studies with Crohn's disease where they take away 
carbohydrates and uh, and fiber. So it was a control trial. So one group, they took away fiber and carbohydrates. The other group, they just left alone. And the group that they took away carbohydrates and fiber, they stayed in remission on average 51 months. Okay. So over four years and contrasted that with the control group where they didn't cut out carbs and sugar out of, or carbs and fiber out of their diet, I should say. They stayed in remission on average zero months, which is not a lot of months. So, you know, this makes a massive difference. What does that mean? That that means to me that there is something in the carbohydrates and the fiber or something that comes along with it, maybe them themselves that are precipitating this autoimmune issue, uh, Crohn's disease. And we see this with a lot of other things, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis. I've, I've seen people reverse their symptoms on multiple sclerosis, be able to walk again. And actually on MRI, their lesions actually start to resolve. So it's not just their, their subjective feelings or their objective exam, physical exam. It's also their objective uh, scans and MRIs showing that these, these lesions damaging their nerves and causing the symptoms of multiple sclerosis, that they're actually resolving. Even Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disease, sees people because of their genetics, they, they can't make, uh, you know, collagen that's, that's tight and strong, uh, like norm normally, uh, we're able to do. And so their joints are a bit more loose or more elastic. They have more elasticity, to their skin, they stretch their skin out more. They have hypermobile joints. And, uh, so they're very, very flexible, but they can also get more injuries because it's just, it's just not being held together as tightly and it's not as protected. And so, that seems to resolve even just by just increasing the amount of meat dramatically. And uh, you don't even have to go full carnivore, but people that just eat a lot more meat uh, seem to resolve the symptoms of Ehlers-Danlos. Why is that? Well, it's probably because we're eating a lot of collagen and, and pre-made amino acids that we can just turn into collagen. We don't need to make this stuff de novo all on our own every single time. We actually use the building blocks we've got in from our diet and, and use that for our own tissues as well. I have three patients at the moment who all have Ehlers-Danlos and who have all resolved their symptoms just by going on a meat-based diet or, you know, they're all on a carnivore diet. And one gentleman, he was so severe that every single morning he would wake up, it, one or more of his joints would be out of place, would be dislocated. So his shoulder would be out of joint shoulder and his knee would be out of joint. His hip would be out of joint. His fingers would be sort of splayed to the side or something like that. Every day, every day he had to relocate his joints, had to, had to pop these things back into place. So obviously quite severely affected after a few months on a carnivore diet, he has not had a single dislocation since. Right. And so he's also improving in a number of other ways, weight loss dramatically. You know, people lose a lot of weight. They improve their hormones objectively. We test their hormones, their their bi other biomarkers. All these things improve, and their weight improves, and their health improves, and their energy improves. And they come off medications. They come off blood pressure medications. They come off diabetes medications. They uh, they improve in so many other ways that it's 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 hard to to catalog them all. But it's a dramatic difference uh, in in all of my patients who are able to do it. So that's got to be, obviously, there's so many factors going on there, right? But that blows my mind because uh, my mum's got an autoimmune illness. Uh, it's called mm -hmm. systemic sclerosis. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. It's uh, mm -hmm. part of the scleroderma family. Uh, it's, yeah. it's quite a rare one, but again, autoimmune illnesses are kind of blowing up now, right? It's almost an epidemic, as you know better than anyone, right? I think it's yeah. just behind heart disease and cancer, right, in terms of 
the uh, popularity of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Becoming more and more widespread. But you said something there about uh, the the client that you had then. And I was just thinking, right, there's so many factors that come into that, right? Because as you say, but a lot of it must come down to the fact that it's pro-inflammatory, the way they were living and eating before. Mm-hmm. There must have been some sort of inflammation, like a lot of inflammation, especially with those specific autoimmune illnesses. So obviously the inflammation has dropped. Also, you mentioned about them losing weight as well. And you know, being being able to manage your weight and not carry an excess body fat, like we said before, on the internal organs is a huge thing as well. So yeah. I know there's a lot going on there. What would you say the main factors though, which is how, because that's like miraculous, right? The fact that he now, his joints were dislocated, not dislocated, yeah. his joints were coming out of place one to two every morning. Not only is that gone, but now he's literally just a new person. It's insane. Mm. Yeah, so for for him for for Ellers Danlos, it's uh, I, we we don't know exactly what the mechanism is, but I would I would hazard to guess that the mechanism is that they that it's you're providing preformed collagen or at least the building blocks to make properly formed collagen from the food that you're eating, so you don't have to make new collagen because if you if you're going to make new collagen, they don't have the genetic capacity to make it tight and strong, but if you're getting the building blocks, you can just build up with those building blocks. Then you know, presumably you can. So that that's a theory, but it it you know it uh, it it describes the observed phenomena anyway. As far as autoimmune issues are concerned, yeah, that that's an interesting one. It's thought that your body is it, there's a cross reaction called molecular mimicry. So if your body reacts to another uh, another pathogen like a virus or a bacteria, or maybe even a foreign body or some sort of plant toxin that is not supposed to be in your body. And your body recognizes this as something foreign. And so it's going to attack it and it's going to try to take it down and get it the hell out of there because it doesn't want it, you know, wrecking, wrecking the house. Normally, a lot of these different plant toxins aren't going to get into your body, but you can get an issue with uh, leaky gut, which is when the tight junctions between your, uh, you know, enterocytes, the, the, the cells in your, in your intestines, they sort of break apart and they get damaged. And all of a sudden there's just these, these gaps in between the cells. All right. And so now you don't have this barrier protection. Like if you had a, like a cut on your skin, all of a sudden now things can get in, right? So it's the same idea, but just on a microscopic level in your gut. And so that's thought to be the, the in route for, for these things. Also fiber can actually cause microabrasions in your gut lining, and that could be a physical damage to uh, the lining of your gut that could allow these things to to come in as well. And you ask anyone with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or anything like that, what eating fiber does to them, they will tell you this is definitely not an essential nutrient. It's actually uh, you know something that should be avoided at all costs. Um, they they'll get horribly horribly symptomatic and uh, and and get horrible horrible symptoms as a result of that. And people with IBS as well can get uh, seriously messed up with with a high fiber diet. So. The um, the idea is is that some of these, you know, uh, bacteria are now going to be allowed into your system. Your body's going to attack those, but also things from the plants, different plant defense chemicals like various lectins can get into your body, and they can cause all sorts of damage to your body. Uh, they can also act as 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 mimics in your for your different hormones like insulin. Uh, some lectins can actually bind to insulin receptors more tightly than insulin itself and give a give a higher insulin effect than if you were on a high carb diet. So you know, even people on a ketogenic diet, if they're eating things that have these lectins in them, that can actually cause a, a similar result 
uh, as if they were, their insulin was high. One thing that it can do though, is that your body recognizes these things as foreign. It doesn't want them there. And so it attacks them and makes antibodies towards them. And then in the genetically susceptible, those antibodies are similar enough to the body's own cells or something on the body's own cells that there's a cross reaction. And so there's a sort of a spillover effect of those antibodies. And I say spillover effect because I think that's what it is. I think your body's attacking one thing, but because this is systemic, it's just producing antibodies throughout the whole body to try to get this stuff everywhere uh, that your circulatory system can get to, um, that that's what it's doing. It just happens to hit some of your own cells. But what was thought before with molecular mimicry was that your body would be sensitized to your own cells and your body would start attacking your own cells. I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that you then, that these antibodies then go onto your cells and your body goes, yep, those are dead. We're going to attack those now. Um, first of all, because you're, you know, if anybody who studied immunology at a, a graduate or postgraduate level, the way I did, uh, you'll know that your, your immune cells are not allowed to make things that will attack your own body. And so, you know, in the thymus and other parts of the body, when they, these, these immature immune cells are being, being made, if they attack or respond to any antigen that your body normally makes, it just gets killed. It's wiped out. It's like, nope, we don't want you because we don't want you attacking, you know, the host. Um, now that's not to say that they can't be sensitized, but I, you know, it just off the bat, it's just sort of a bit odd that that would happen. The other reason I say that, and really the more important reason I say that is because you can actually see a reversible nature to these diseases. Like I said, you know, you stop eating certain things and the problem goes away, right? So if you were sensitized, if you had Crohn's or ulcerative colitis and you were sense and your body made these antibodies towards something else initially, and then now they're making it directed at, you know, your own body. Well, if you removed that, that stimulus, that wouldn't change anything. Your body's already sensitized to itself and will just keep attacking itself, right? But that's not what happens when you put someone on an elemental diet or you put someone on just a carnivore diet or just take away carbs and fiber, Crohn's goes away, right? And so does MS. And so, does, I mean, we, we actually have in the medical literature going back into the 1800s all the way through 1975 that you can treat these autoimmune diseases with a pure red meat and water diet. Right. And so we forgot all that. In fact, we've just got it, you know, thrown out of medical literature or at least ignored in 1977 when the USDA declared cholesterol causes heart disease, saturated fat increases cholesterol, stop eating both. Therefore, don't eat meat, don't eat eggs. What can you eat? You got to eat vegetables, you got to eat plants. And so they just forgot the last 100 years, 200 years of medical science and uh, and publications and all the different things about plant toxins and oxalates and tannins and all these different things that we're like, we knew were harmful and saying, hey, you have to keep these levels low or else you're going to cause harm. And there's tons of studies showing that going back, I mean, decades from now, hundreds of years, in fact, uh, in a lot of these cases. So there is this reversible nature and I see that in practice. So when you get someone on an elimination diet, when you get rid of all this sort of stuff, you get them on just a just a meat and water diet, which is a which is the best elimination diet you can get. You're only getting the nutrients you need. You're not bringing in anything else uh, that into your body that you don't need. And and you talk about quality of nutrients as well. That's important as well, especially for people that are more sensitive to these things like autoimmune sufferers, because if the animal is fed something that it does, it's not supposed to eat either. Well, it's not going to be able to detoxify those things properly. And so chicken and 
pigs are given a lot of soy. They're not supposed to eat soy. They're not designed to eat soy. And so they can't break the stuff down properly. Some of that's going to get in the meat. Then people with autoimmune issues, they eat pork or chicken that's been raised like that. And, and they can actually get an immune response from it. Not as bad as if they're eating plants or sugar or carbs or whatever, but they are getting a response. And so that's something uh, that I think is you know a, a direct result of just the animal eating something it's not supposed to eat as well. So you know, that shows that reversible nature. And, and I see in clinic with my patients, I see their lab results with say Hashimoto's, we track their antibodies, right? They go on a carnivore diet, those antibodies start coming down and their thyroid function starts going up. And that can take a while, that can take actually a long time. Uh, Hashimoto's is, is particularly stubborn, but you know, we have patients that have been doing a carnivore diet for a year or, or close to two years and their antibodies just continuing to go lower and lower and lower. And the, the, and the more strict that they can get, the better result that they have. So I think that's, that's what's going on with autoimmune diseases. You have this cross reaction with some of the things that we're eating that we're not supposed to eat. Our body's reacting to that and there's a spillover effect. But the good news there is you remove that something that we're eating, usually plants, that then you stop making the antibodies towards it. Your gut will heal. You stop the leaky gut. You'll stop letting things in. It takes months. It can take like six months for that. And then after that, you stop making as many of these uh, antibodies. And then your disease just goes away. And I've seen that time and time and time again. I have yet to see an autoimmune issue that has not uh, significantly improved, if not resolved, on, on a carnivore diet. I have yet to see that. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane, but it just it does make sense when you break it down like that. And talking about the cholesterol, so you said 1977 when they brought out this, uh, well, propaganda, whatever you want to call it. Mm. And obviously it's very harmful because it's not only the wrong information, but it's pretty much the opposite, right? So yeah. Yeah. I told you about the pushback that I, I've had you know, with some clients when they've gone to the doctors about cholesterol and stuff, despite being in the shape of their life and feeling better than ever. So that debate there with the cholesterol and the saturated fat, like you just said, then saturated fats, because a lot of people listen to this, they're still going to be almost a little bit fearful or at least aware of the fact that surely if my cholesterol goes too high, then that's going to be a problem. Heart disease, we can go down the list, right? They've even tried pulling out the, the stomach cancer card, right? With, with red meat. So just explain that to us, why that is essentially a load of nonsense and how you would articulate that to the audience. Yeah, well, the the idea with with cholesterol was, you know, it was all pretty much predicated on that 1977 USDA declaration, and and uh, you know that's that's appealing to authority. You know, the teacher said so, therefore it's right. Well, not necessarily. Teacher's not always right, and so you know it, it's sort of the opposite of like like an ad hominem. You say, well, I don't like that guy, therefore he's wrong. Well, you know, you know, he may may or may not be a nice person, but that doesn't have anything to do with the veracity of his statement or the, or the factual content of his statement. And just, you know, because someone's in authority doesn't mean that they're always correct. You know, this, this all human endeavors are going to be flawed in one direction or another. So you have to go back and look at, and look at what this stuff was predicated on. I mean, even going back to the journal of the American medical association, I found a, a, a study or a paper that was published in uh, 1956 and they're saying that, you know, well, you know, it's, it's pretty much accepted in the medical community that cholesterol is a causative factor for heart disease. However, this is based on very bad information, very poor, weak studies, and, uh, and we should not be changing our approach to heart disease or any other sort of diseases, um, 
based on these. And he went through them and just basically excoriated all of these things and, and showed just how how weak they were and how how badly designed they were and uh, in fact biased they were. So a good a good look at this was um, a paper that was studied or that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, which is one of the top medical journals in the world. It was um, a publication out of UC San Francisco uh, Medical School, which is one of the top medical schools in the world and one of the top research institutions in the world. And they published actual internal memos from the sugar industry called the Sugar Foundation, now called the Sugar Association, back in the 50s and 60s, detailing how they paid off various professors and doctors to falsify data and publish fraudulent studies to make it appear as if cholesterol caused heart disease when it was really sugar. And uh, one of these professors was from Harvard. There's a number of Harvard professors, and they named them by name in this paper. And uh, one of those professors was named head of the USDA, and it was he who authored and published that 1977 declaration saying that cholesterol caused heart disease when it was really sugar. And um, and we know that he was bought and paid for. We have his contract. We know what he got paid. He got paid $6,500 in, in uh, that money, which is, which is only worth about $50,000 US now. Right. So he, he bought a Camry with that. That's what his, his soul was worth. That's what the health of the, of the unit of the world was worth was just a midsize sedan. Like that was it. That was, that was what that guy cost. That's what his integrity cost. And, and it really damaged people. This was hotly debated for decades. And the people that were arguing, Hey, no, look, this looks like it's more like sugar. We have a perfect the correlation perfectly tracks uh, with increase in sugar consumption and increase in heart disease. It does not do that with saturated fat. In fact, in the 20th century, as heart disease is going up, saturated fat and animal uh, fat intake is going down. It's actually inversely related, but it perfectly tracks with increase in sugar and increase in uh, industrial seed oils as well. And, th and there's a delay. There's like you know a 15 year delay between the rise in seed oils and sugar and the rise in heart disease. It perfectly tracks, and it's literally the opposite for saturated fat and um, and animal fats. Then, um, so that, I mean, that right there, I think that that you throw everything out there. Um, the uh, Ansel Keys is another one of these uh, bastards that did this. And um, and he did something called the Seven Nations Study. And, and this looked at seven different countries around the world. And they and he said that like, look at this, it's, it's plot this graph. It's like this exponential increase. The more cholesterol, the more heart disease. Wow, look at that, it's conclusive. Well, it's correlation, it's not causation, right? No, you can't prove causation with correlation. That's just not how that works. Um, there's a correlation between ice cream sales and shark attacks. Does that mean that that sharks just like sweet tasting kids, you know, who just eaten ice cream, you know? Or is it that more people buy ice cream in the summer when it's warm and they're going to the beach and swimming where the sharks are, right? So that's a correlation that's not necessarily causation. Right. And so, you know, that that's what you have to look at. So that was a correlation. It wasn't causation. The problem is he had, he had uh, complete data for like 22 countries, but he only used the seven that fit his narrative. Right. Because the other ones, there were, there were a number of countries that had very high cholesterol levels and very low heart disease levels. And some that had extremely low cholesterol levels and very high heart disease levels. So it actually wasn't even really correlated at all, let alone strongly. And, you know, when you have an idea predicated on a false uh, pretense, you have to throw it out and you have to start over. And so you look at, you look at other, other points of data that, that weren't done fraudulently. Actually, Ansel Keys did a number of other studies, actually did randomized controlled trials 
you know, looking at, you know, if you intervene and put someone on unsaturated fat and lower their cholesterol, um, you know, LDL cholesterol, you know, is that going to help? And actually, in fact, they found that no, it didn't help. And in some cases it made it worse and people saw heart disease levels and, and cardiovascular disease rates actually went up and deaths from heart disease went up. Right. And they buried these. There's a couple studies, like one that, that, that Ansel Keys did that he actually buried for like 17 years. And, and it, it sort of got leaked out and they were like, Hey, you know, there's this study and it showed this and it was like, was there a problem with the study? Was there something wrong with it? And he was like, well, no, you know, nothing went wrong with it. It's just, we were pretty disappointed with the, with the outcome. It's like, yeah, that's not how this works, dude. Like you need to publish that. And there's another one that actually was, was done like in the seventies only got published, I think like in, in the 2010s, you know, so these things were buried. Uh, and, but they were large randomized controlled trials with thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people. And yet the people that, that, uh, you know, talk about you know, cholesterol, oh, well, yes, we'll talk about that, but that, no, 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 those don't count. Or like, well, the, the only randomized controlled trials that exist and, um, and everything else was correlative. And there were also the correlative studies that have been shown to be fraudulent. Another example is, uh, the Framingham study, which is uh, what most people are taught in medical school and you know maybe in, elsewhere in the nutritional sciences. Um, this was done over the course of you know 20, 30 years. And they looked at a number of people, I mean, tens of thousands of people. Uh, and uh, and they, they looked at different markers and different things that they ate and different uh, you know blood levels and all these sorts of things and their health outcomes. And what I was taught in medical school was that in the Framingham study, the higher levels of, of cholesterol and LDL cholesterol, the higher levels of cardiovascular disease. And I was like, hmm, okay, it's a pretty good study. Tens of thousands of people, uh, strong correlation. Interesting. Okay. And, and you don't have any reason to doubt that because this is just what we've been pumped in, has been pumped into our ears since, since we're born basically. And so no reason to not believe that. The problem with that is that that's not true. That's not actually what the Framingham study found. The Framingham study actually found the lower cholesterol levels had an inverse relationship with heart disease. So people who had lower cholesterol actually had more cardiovascular disease and death. Okay. So that's fraud, right? So the American Heart Association actually fraudulently misrepresented the uh, results of the Framingham study two years after it was published. And that is what got into the medical textbooks. That's what got into the medical curriculum 40 years later you know, is still being taught that way. And it's wrong. And this is documented to be wrong. And you can, people can look that up. This is, this has been published in peer reviewed journals that that is incorrect. And that it actually shows the opposite and they show the real numbers. Um, there's a ton of other studies. There's a really good set of studies with um, about 140,000, 150,000 people each. So big studies uh, in the US that looked at people that had a heart attack over the course of a period of time. And they found that these people, there was 50-50, whether they had high or normal or low cholesterol, LDL cholesterol specifically. So it wasn't, there wasn't even a correlation one way or the other. It was completely unrelated. It just had nothing to do with it. It was 50-50. It wasn't even like 51% had, had uh, high cholesterol or something like that. I'm like, oh, okay, well, there's a slight increase or whatever. No, no, it was 50-50. Half the people that had heart attacks had normal cholesterol, right? So what that, that sort of does away with that 
association, right? And you can't prove correlation or you can't prove causation from correlation. But if you show that there's no correlation, that proves there's no causation, right? And what's more is one of those studies actually followed up these people uh, in two years. And they found that the people who, who maintained low LDL cholesterol levels or had high and then reduced their cholesterol levels down to normal levels, so-called normal levels, that they actually were twice as likely to, to have died uh, prior to follow-up two years later than the high cholesterol group, the so-called high cholesterol group. So that shows there might be some, some uh, mechanism of protection with higher levels of LDL cholesterol. And there are other studies that suggest that as well. The Journal of the American College of Cardiology published in 2020, a massive uh, literature review going through all of the data and all the uh, most recent best meta-analyses looking at saturated fat and its connection to heart disease and found that there is no link. There is no correlation even between increased saturated fat intake and heart disease or cardiovascular disease. And in fact, they found an inverse relationship between the amount of saturated fat people ate and stroke levels. So the more saturated fat you eat, the lower your stroke risk. The less saturated fat you eat, the higher your stroke risk, right? And there are other studies that have actually shown that with LDL cholesterol as well, that it has an inverse relationship with cardiovascular disease, just as the Framingham study actually suggested. It showed an inverse correlation with lower levels of LDL cholesterol and cardiovascular disease. So this is the literature. And there are a number of studies that have come out in the last decade that with tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of patients, recent studies that have shown the exact opposite outcomes that you would predict with the, this cholesterol theory of heart disease. And so the, and all the other data is, has been thoroughly proven to have been fraudulent. And so you can't use it. You have to throw it away. And then you look at what's left and it shows exactly the opposite. The cholesterol is actually really good for you. It's important for your body and your and normal workings of your physiology. Every single cell in your body is cholesterol. The cell membranes in every single one of our cell is cholesterol. I remember learning that in eighth grade biology class. I'm looking at this in a textbook and thinking, how can cholesterol be bad for us? We literally are made from cholesterol. And I was like, well, you know, I'm only a kid. I don't know everything about this yet. I'm sure there's there's some sort of, you know, in, in intricacies of this that, that um, you know, cause problems. But, you know, that always stuck with me. It's just like, we are cholesterol. Our bile is made uh, with cholesterol as a major component. All of our hormones are made out of cholesterol. Vitamin D is made out of cholesterol. Testosterone, DHEA, androstene estrogen, progestogens, cortisol, mineralocorticoids, uh, glucocorticoids, everything made by our adrenals, all of these are made from cholesterol, right? And so our brains are made out of cholesterol. There's a large portion of our brains and the myelination of our axons, of our uh, myelin sheath and our axons that are cholesterol. So this is to, to think that this is something that's inherently dangerous to us I, I think is to take a, a serious miscalculation and to try to lower this and to stop your body's ability from making cholesterol is I think, I think reckless because we've actually seen this. We've had we've seen people get reversible Alzheimer's disease where they're in, in nursing homes because they have such severe Alzheimer's and they're on certain statins. Not all statins can do this, but some statins can cross the blood brain barrier. And there have been studies looking at this and they found that people that have 
have been on these statins that can cross the blood brain barrier and interrupt the brain's ability to make cholesterol, which it has to do for the normal functioning and structure of the brain and structure is function. If you lose the structure, you lose the function. That's how cellular biology works. And so you're losing the structure, you're losing the function in your brain and, and it's stopping your brain from, from making cholesterol, which it has to have for its normal structure and function. And they found that this is reversible. You take these people off that particular statin and after six weeks or so, all of a sudden they don't have Alzheimer's anymore and they can go home. And then you put them back on that statin and all of a sudden, six weeks later, they have Alzheimer's again. So there's a, this reversible nature of this. This is this is a, a toxic, that means it's not a disease, right? It means you're exposed to something, you get an exposure, you have a reaction to it, just like you get lead exposure, you get lead poisoning, it's caused specific end organ damage to your body. And you can measure this and go, wow, this person is very sick. We understand those symptoms to be lead poisoning now, if, if you know what to look for. And then you remove the lead, people stop having a problem. They get over it, right? You reintroduce the lead again, they're going to get, get lead poisoning again. So that's what we're we're faced with now. I think that the majority of these chronic diseases that we're facing nowadays are a combination of um, you know, uh, toxicities and malnutrition. They're not diseases per se, but toxicities and malnutrition. Toxic buildup of a species-inappropriate diet and a lack of species-specific nutrition, namely too many plants that we aren't biologically designed to extract appropriate nutrients from and to detoxify appropriately and a lack of species specific nutrition, which is fatty meat that gives us our required nutrients. And so that is my long-winded uh, response to uh, anything, someone, you know, any sort of doctor or clinician or anyone who has uh, an issue with cholesterol. I just like, those are the facts. The facts are that the studies looking at, at this and suggested a correlation between cholesterol, higher levels of LDL cholesterol and heart disease were fraudulent. They were false. And we know that we have hard documentation that they were not just incorrect. They were not just false, but fraudulent. And that the better studies, better designed, better controlled, randomized controlled trials with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients that were not fraudulent, that were not bought and paid for by the sugar companies, that these showed the exact opposite, that cholesterol is very necessary for life and is, is necessary for optimal health. And this is why it's so important for people to tune in to experts like yourself in the field, right? Because getting this information is so hard, you know, and people have so much conflicting information, but there it is in black and white. And that makes total sense. The fact that, you know, it's already been proven that essentially not only is it a load of BS, but it's the opposite information again, right? And, you know, with cholesterol being uh, an essential nutrient, right? Why would your liver produce an essential nutrient to keep you alive? As you said, we are basically made up of cholesterol. Every cell, you know, cholesterol adds, acts as a steroid hormone. Why would your liver produce, what well, on average, the equivalent to about three to four egg yolks uh, or eggs a day, right? Worth of cholesterol around about that anyway. Uh, so I looked into, I may have got that wrong, but just to give the audience an idea, it's an essential nutrient. Why would your body produce something to keep you alive that's going to be bad for you. So yeah, that was, and how about the fiber? I wanted to ask you, whilst I've got you here, right? The whole fiber thing, because this is something I struggle to communicate with. I have so much, so much pushback on this with people who say, you know, but it's clear in the research that fiber is really, really good for you. There's no denying that. A lot of people, I've had a few people on my podcast and we've had this kind of debate and stuff. And what would you say to that, man, with the fiber debate? 
Is it really well, I mean, essential? Do we really need it? <laughs> well, what, what, what is an essential nutrient, right? Essential means that you have to have it or you'll die, right? So, you know, the way they, they increase fiber in uh, different foods, processed foods, is they is they actually add sawdust to them. Because that, that's what fiber is. It's cellulose, right? So it's plant fiber. It's wood, right? You can't eat wood. And so, you know, you chip it up into, into uh, sawdust and you put that, you mix that into food, right? So that that's what... That's what fiber is. Um, I don't think that anyone is going to argue that you can't get any nutrition from sawdust. You can't break it down. You can't get anything from it. And, uh, and so how is it an essential nutrient? If you, if you don't actually get nutrition from it, it's, uh, in fact, it's an anti-nutrient and it blocks the absorption and actually breakdown degradation of the food that you eat into it's an essential amino acids and fats and, and, and constituent carbohydrates, if you're eating those and, and uh, blocks your intestines' ability from absorbing it as well. So that's actually an anti-nutrient. It's it's called it causes malabsorption. That's well documented. That is well that's well established. That it actually prevents you from absorbing nutrients. So how are we calling that an essential nutrient if it's stopping you from getting other nutrients and it doesn't provide any nutrients itself? This is a simple definition of terms here. And so you know that I would I would argue. Uh, cannot be an essential nutrient, A, because it's not a nutrient, and B, because it blocks other essential nutrients from being utilized and absorbed. Um, what are the studies they're saying? They're, oh, well, this is well-established. You have to have fiber. Well, I haven't eaten fiber in, in years and uh, no problems. And uh, the Inuits don't have any fiber available to them at all, ever. And uh, and they're doing just fine. 66% of all carnivores or, or of all animals on earth are carnivores. They don't eat any fiber at all. They're doing just fine. And so, you know, that, that on its face doesn't make any sense, but the studies that they would be looking at are rife with biases. You know, a lot of these nutritional sciences, uh, you can't even call it a science because they're so corrupted with, uh, you know, different sort of influences, like by the different food industries, they'll just, they're just pumping in money to sort of muddy the waters to make their product look less bad or maybe even good. And it's also influenced by, uh, religious, uh, parties such as the seventh day Adventist church. Not everyone knows this, but they are religiously anti-meat. So they're religiously vegetarian. One of their prophetesses, back in the late 1800s, had a vision from God who said that he doesn't want us eating meat, that meat is sinful, it causes lustful feelings, lust is a sin, therefore meat is, is bad, meat is evil, meat is sinful. So this was, this is religious, this is religion talking, this is not science talking. And they actually founded the field of nutritional dietetics in the 1917, I think. And so they actually, the very first books on nutritional sciences were written by the Seventh-day Adventists. They have had their grubby little fingers in nutritional sciences since the beginning, and they are still heavily involved. Uh, if people want to know more about that, they should look up uh, talks and lectures uh, by Belinda Fetke, F-E-T-T-K-E. -E. Uh, she has done you know, yeoman's work, you know, uncovering, uh, the, the sordid past in nutritional sciences and the influences from the, uh, Seventh-day Adventist church. And so, you know, they do pretty dodgy studies. A lot of these things are out of Loma Linda Medical Center, which is a Seventh-day Adventist medical school and medical center, right? And, uh, and they do biased research because they are biased researchers, and some of the things that they do, they'll look at processed food, 
And they'll call that meat because sometimes the ingredients include meat, like pizza sometimes has meat toppings. Therefore, pizza is meat. Fast food, well, it's a hamburger. That's meat, right? Well, there's also a bun and and uh, sugary sauces and uh, French fries, potatoes, deep fried and trans fats for decades and seed oils now, which can turn into trans fats, which we know are toxic and, and, uh, uh, atherosclerosis, uh, that causes atherosclerosis and, and also, you know, a super big gulp size soda with a bunch of sugar in it, which we know is quite harmful as well. And they're calling that meat. And so they talk to me, they have these surveys. They say, well, how much, how much, how often do you eat fast food or pizza? And they'll say a certain number of time that counts as meat. Well, how, how much time do you eat steak? How much time, how, how often do you do that? But they lump in fast food and pizza, processed food, processed garbage with meat and call that meat in order to make meat look bad. And say, oh, well, when you reduce the amount of meat, people who ate less meat, you know, and ate more fruits and vegetables, whole fruits and vegetables with more fiber, oh, they did better. Okay. So if you're not eating fiber, the average American, average Australian, average person in the world, if you're not eating fiber, it's not because you're on a carnivore diet like like I am. It's because you're on a highly processed diet because there's not a lot of fiber in processed food because you can't. They try to make this stuff, freeze it, and then ship it out. You can't really freeze it properly if it has fiber in it uh, because it just gets all mushy and weird. And so, processed food doesn't have fiber in it, right? And so, if you're not eating any fiber, eating very little fiber, it's not because you're eating a whole food meat based diet like the Maasai are, or the Inuit are, or the Mongolians are or were Genghis Khan, the Mongol horde, you know, they were just eating horse meat, horse blood. They conquered the world, you know, and they were massive and they were extremely healthy and they are eating processed garbage. That's what people who don't eat fiber are now. Right. And so you're, you're comparing apples to oranges, right? And so it's not, it, it doesn't really tell you anything. So you're saying you're conflating, not eating as much processed food with fiber being good for you because all oh, these guys ate this stuff, whole food, plants and fruit and vegetables, and those have fiber in them. This has less fiber in them. This group A did better than group B. Therefore, it's because of the fiber. They're, they're attributing the benefit to something that they have not controlled for. There are so many confounding factors. They have no idea if it's fiber or not. And they have no idea if it's meat or not because they haven't controlled for these things. And, and in fact, they've specifically obscured the uh the data because they've they've lied basically and they've they've misled and they've called processed food they called that meat which is nonsense so the only and, and again I've, I've already alluded to the fact that in you know a theory is only as good as what it's able to predict right and the theory is more fiber is better and they say that's more fiber is better for intestinal health and, and gut health and things like that and yet we already talked about the fact that if you eliminate carbohydrates and fiber that you remove, that you eliminate Crohn's disease and put the people in remission on average 51 months. And if you continue eating carbs and fiber, that people don't go into remission at all. They continue to have horrible, horrible, horrible side effects and symptoms of their Crohn's disease, right? So right there, you already know that's a controlled trial with actual humans that you controlled for two variables, carbs and fiber, and you found worse result with the, with the fiber group, okay? So maybe you can say it's all the carbs and the fiber was helping, maybe, but that's down to two variables as opposed to 9,000 variables in all of their studies. Then if you want to look at a direct interventional trial with fiber, really the only one that exists is with you know smaller studies, sort of 60, 70 patients, uh, but they all had 
uh, gut irritation, you know, sort of GI upset. And they, uh, so everyone was symptomatic and they were all eating a certain amount of fiber and they split them up into four groups. One group just stayed the same. Just keep doing what you're doing. One group started increasing the amount of fiber. They really like doubled the amount of fiber that they were eating. Another group reduced the amount of fiber they're eating. The other group eliminated fiber completely. And what happened? It perfectly stratified exactly the opposite of these guys would predict. So again, their theory would predict the more fiber, the better, the less fiber, the worse. And that was exactly the opposite. So their theory is wrong. Their theory sucks. You know, their theory is, is completely incorrect because the more fiber people ate, the worse their symptoms got. Stayed the same, stayed the same. Less fiber, better symptoms, improved symptoms, no fiber, complete resolution of their symptoms and their GI upset. So the fiber was causing the problems or at least the things, something that came with the fiber anyway. And so, you know, as, as Richard Feynman, the physicist said, it doesn't matter how brilliant your theory is and it doesn't matter how smart you are. If it doesn't agree with experiment, it's wrong. And so their theory is that you need fiber. It's essential. Well, we know that's wrong because the Maasai, the Inuit, me, and all the other people that aren't eating any fiber, eating a whole food, meat-based diet, we're doing just fine without the fiber. And they're doing this generation after generation. Can't do that. If it's an essential nutrient, you'll die out, period. Plain and simple, end of story. But also saying, well, it, it's beneficial to your health to eat more fiber, especially to your gut health, to eat more fiber. Well, that's wrong too, because you did the experiment. You had an interventional trial where you added more fiber, took away fiber, and you found exactly the opposite. And there was another study, it was actually quite a lot larger than that, that looked at uh, colon disease, diverticulosis, right? So it's an outpouching failure of the of the colon. They sort of have this outpouching uh, of, of, the, of the tissue and sort of herniating out these little bubbles and things like that. They can rupture. You can die from this. You get infected, diverticulitis. You can die from this too. You can you get massive surgery, you know, taking out large part of your colon, um, which may or may not be able to reattach. Maybe you're, you're pooping into a bag for the rest of your life, right? So it's a major issue. It's a major, major problem. And they did over 2000 colonoscopies. So camera, you know, up the bum and looked in and, and so diagnosed looking at who had diverticulosis and uh, more or less amount of it and, you know, uh, and quantified it. And they found that as people got older, you know, as expected, they had more uh, rates, higher rates of diverticulosis. Um, but that other than that, nothing else even correlated with diverticulosis, except for two things, more fiber in their diet and more bowel motions a week. So more than 15 bowel motions a week at a very high uh, correlation with diverticulosis. And, and the more fiber people ate, the more diverticulosis they got, right? Constipation did not make the list. Meat did not make the list. Fat did not make the list. Just increased fiber, increased number of bowel motions a week, those are the only things correlated. And they were strongly correlated with the development of diverticulosis. So, you know, I'd love for these people to explain that. I'd love for these people to explain how, you know, why uh, if fiber is so good for us that it causes colon disease. I'd love for them to explain why someone, when someone gets diverticulitis, that when they come into the hospital, the first thing we do is put them on a no fiber diet called a low residue diet. Why is that? Why is it when someone has, uh, you know, uh, um, appendicitis or bowel surgery, we put them on a low residue diet, a no fiber diet. Why is that? If fiber is so good for people, 
Why wouldn't it be good for them at all times? Wouldn't you want something that's good for your gut to help heal your gut if your gut is harmed because it's hurt? No, but it actually does the opposite. It harms your gut. And we and we see this in large studies with humans. Interventional trials causes harm. Controlled trials and autoimmune diseases causes harm. And in large studies looking at uh, directly in the colon and who has uh, colon disease and who doesn't, that fiber is correlated with this sort of disease. So, you know, I don't know where they're coming from or what they're basing it on, but I think they're wrong. Hmm. Again, it makes a, makes a lot of sense the way you've broken it down, you know, and I think for the audience, what would you say to the audience? Cause just to make sure, cause it is pretty kind of simple what we're talking about here. Cause some people can get overwhelmed, but the reality is when you're eating the most nutrient dense foods known to man, such as, you know, beef, eggs, you know, organ meat, whatever, um, essentially you get most of the nutrients you need, right? And when oh, you have yeah. all, all of them, yeah, you get all of them. And when you have high protein, you know, that blends your appetite. It's much harder to, to, to well, it's, it's impossible. I said this before, right? It's actually impossible to overeat when you're eating like a carnival diet because, mm. you know, you're having, you're having nutrient dense food, you're getting all the protein and fats, all the ascent. Again, like fats and proteins, certain amino acids and fatty acids, you'd actually die without. That's the definition of essential nutrient. In fact, yeah. it's nasty, right? If you had a deficiency in any of those things, horrific, right? Whereas obviously carbohydrates, you can live totally fine without. But uh, mm -hmm. thanks for breaking that down for us, man. That was awesome. No um, I'm just going to wrap this up now, mate. And just uh, I was just going to ask you where the best place for the uh, for the audience to find you is, Ant. Yeah. Well, yeah, if there's so anything else you'd like to say to wrap up, mate, as well as any anything you'd like to say to the audience, then you can fire away. Oh well, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, this is something we could talk about, you know, for days and days and days. And you know, that as as be seen by there's so many different podcasts and YouTube channels and videos you know, by people like yourself and myself, Dr. Baker, Dr. Barry, you know, Dr. Kiltz, um, and, and, you know, Dr. Paul Mason and, and so many other people that, you know, a lot of people are putting these things out and putting out research and talking about the evidence and the data, just as we have today, uh, to cover each and every facet of health and arguments as to what's good or bad to eat and what's beneficial and, and less beneficial to eat. So, you know, we could, we could talk about this for days. Um, and I, I, you know, enjoy that, you know, it's, it's something that interests me, but you know, if people are interested in this, I mean, this is obviously just the tip of the iceberg. Maybe this gets them interested and, you know, do your own research, go look and, and, you know, maybe watch my videos, watch some of your videos, watch some Dr. Baker's videos and, and everyone else and, and see what you think. You know, we generally put like all that stuff I talked about with, with cholesterol. Um, I have a video called the facts about cholesterol and heart disease. I have those studies listed in the description you guys can go look at them and see for yourself and see and listen to my arguments and listen to the, the historical facts and then read about it yourself and go like, shit, all right, that's right. Or maybe like, mm, well, maybe I interpret that differently. Fine, you know, but it's there for you to see, you know, all that stuff about fiber. That That's all in, in my video on fiber constipation and diet. You know, I talk about that. It's in the description. Go take a look, see what we have to say, see what we're basing that on and decide for yourself. Go to the opposite. Go to Dr. Greger. You know, go to Dean Ornish. Go to those those sorts of guys that are are saying the opposite. Have made their careers by saying the opposite, and see why. See what their arguments are, and see what they're basing it on, and see and do check their work. See if the if you agree with the studies they put out, and then you check it against somewhere else. You know, they're saying, "Wow, look at this thing by Ansel Keys. Look at this thing by these these uh, brilliant professors from Harvard." And you go, "Like, well, hold on a second. But I just read in the Journal of American Medical Association." that all of those chumps were bought and paid for and all of that was fraudulent work. So obviously I'm not 
going to listen to that. Obviously, I'm not going to look at that. I'll, I'm going to discount that because it's fraud, as you should. And so you can do that um, as well. And just, you know, take a look at yourself and, and come uh, form your own decisions. Awesome, man. Awesome. And I'm glad you've got some of those studies underneath your videos because it's handy to send clients over to sometimes over to uh, over to these studies as well, right? Just to give them the expert, well, not the expert, just to give them the actual research, the evidence, you know what I mean? In, in black and yeah. white. Where can the audience find you, my man? Where's yeah. the best place from the seek you out? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and Instagram, I use that um, more than other things. So it's just Anthony Chafee, MD, uh, Chafee spelled C-H-A-F-F as in Frank, double E. And um, and then my YouTube channel is the same thing. So that's where I do all my videos and and uh, and interviews and you know solo things that I talk about things on my own or I bring other experts on uh, to talk about um, you know their knowledge and experience as well. And that's just Anthony Chafee, MD, as well. And then my podcast is the Plant Free MD, as you could probably guess <laughs> by uh, by by uh, today's podcast. But um, that's most of it. And I have like a link tree in. Um, in uh my instagram and things like that that you can get to the rest of them and like you know twitter's anthony underscore chafee but most of it's like anthony chafee md and yeah people can just find me through there and uh and find the rest of it through those associated links in there awesome and just for the audience i'll add all of those links into the show notes anyway and thanks for your time my man really enjoyed that thanks for coming on not a problem man thanks for having me cheers